We'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We've been taking our cues from the narrative of Exodus and following the Israelites out of Egypt. Well, we followed them for a time in Egypt during the time of Exodus, where the Lord judged the Egyptians and their gods through ten plagues. And then leading them out of Egypt, he leads them into the wilderness and then from the short wilderness to Sinai. For he is conditioning them, he is training them, he is bringing them into conformity to himself as they come into conformity as the idea that they are God's people and the, God, the Lord is their God. And so he's taking this enslaved people into covenant bonds. And he's doing this not for their own sake in particular, but for his own name's sake as he seeks to bring about the Savior of Jews, of the Jews and the Gentiles through the making of this nation. And so he is the great promiser of Genesis 3, the maker of heaven and earth. Follow along as I read for us Exodus 20. I'll be reading verses 1 through 21, though we'll just be covering the first three commandments this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave you unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stands with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people perceive the thundering and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. 
For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help one more time this morning. O Lord, our God, truly you are the lawgiver. And we are lawbreakers. Help us then, Lord, as we come before your law this morning to see our sin and also to see our Savior. That we may rejoice at his redemption. And in that rejoicing, with gratitude, seek to obey you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, I wanted to give us some reminders of what we've established about the law as we enter in specifically taking uh, these commandments um, in pace. Uh, And I want to remind us that what we've established about the law is that the law is good. And that though we find that there's rising animosity in us to it because we fall short of it, and that it, it in many ways accuses us and shows our sin, that it is only because of our sin. It is not bad in nature. Paul says in Romans that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good because it is a reflection of a holy and righteous and good God. And so this echoing the words of the psalmist in Psalm 19, that they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And so then we, as those who have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, have been given the mind of Christ so that we would love God's law and say with him, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And we saw how the Ten Commandments are a summation of the moral law of God. And so then this law as a covenant of works must be preached to unregenerate sinners in order to convince them of their sin and misery and to impel them to accept the compassionate Savior offered to them in the gospel. But this same law is also to be preached as a rule of life to believers in order to excite them to trust at all times in Christ for new supplies of sanctifying grace and to advance in holy conformity to him. And so we've, I made mention of this in the previous sermon, but the first, we see this law uh, broken up into two tables. The first four commandments make up the first table of the moral law. This twofold division is really an exposition that our Lord gave in Matthew 22 when asked, what is the greatest commandment? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Then he went on further to exposit the law by saying, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Here lie the insight into the moral law given by the lawgiver. The first table of the law addresses our obligation to the Lord. 
And the second table, our obligation to our neighbor. And both that obligation can further be summarized by the word love. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind. And we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And so this morning we're in the first table and we're going to address just the first three commandments. The first we'll see is the object of our worship. The second is how he is to be worshipped, how he has ordained to be worshipped, how he regulates his worship. The third is how he is to be approached. And the fourth, when we come to it, In the coming weeks, the fourth is when this sacredly takes place. So the confession is emphatic about the Christian's freedom for the law, though, as it pertains to justification, specifically the guilt of sin, the wrath of God, and the curse of the law. But Christians are not free from the law in every sense. And so as we examine the first three commandments, we look to see how Adam broke them, their existence prior to Sinai, and Christ's perfect obedience to them, and then finally, how they benefit us in Christ. And so as we look at these laws, we really want to see that this, the 10 words given on Sinai are a summation of that moral law rooted in God's holy character. And so that if it's rooted in God's holy character in that direct way, as they were given, uh, written by the finger of God, placed out inside the Ark of the Covenant, given special place in the worship of, uh, the, old co- of uh, the Old Covenant worship, we will see that this moral law and being set aside like that is binding on all men at all times. We will also try to see, as we, as we look at it and examine it, we'll probably see in some way how it is also applied to some people at some times. And so there's positive law aspects to this giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. But as it pertains to the moral law, this we find is a summation of that. And so we'll see that uh, more clearly as it relates to the fourth commandment, but uh, the fourth and the fifth commandments, and but we'll try to make reference of it in these first three commandments also. So let's look at the first commandment together. In verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. We know that uh, from previous weeks that this uh, prohibition comes with implied uh, regulate a requirement that there's not only a you shall not have other gods before me but there is also a requirement to have the lord as our god and so as we look at it in light of adam we can i'm going to benefit from two men edward fisher who wrote the marrow of modern divinity and mark jones edward fisher says that adam chose himself another god when he followed the devil. So we see how Adam broke the first commandment when he chose himself another God when he followed the devil. He followed after the word of Satan opposed to the word of God. 
He followed after the guidance of Satan as opposed to his sovereign creator. And in that way, the devil took place, took the Lord's place in Adam's life. And so Adam did not, Adam had another God before the Lord. He had, he had brought the devil into that place. And in many ways, he brought himself into that place. Mark Jones uh, observes that Adam broke the first commandment in his unbelief. As the reformed have rightly noted, unbelief was Adam's first sin. He failed to love God, but instead showed sinful self-love. He was self-seeking. His sin included unbelief, distrust, despair, pride, presumption, and cowardice. There was also a failure to depend upon the Holy Spirit. So we see in Adam that in his failure of taking of the tree of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and taking it and eating it, in breaking that positive law, he also breaks the moral law of God. And here specifically the aspect of our attention is the first commandment. And so not only did he choose another God for himself, but he also loved another God before the one true and living God. And he loved himself and he loved what he thought he could gain from eating that. He stopped trusting the Lord and started trusting himself or trusting the words of the serpent or maybe even trusting the judgment of Eve. This unbelief of Adam was, was not a lack of faith as we would consider faith, that we have faith in Christ. For Adam was not in need of redemption before the fall, but he was in need of belief. He needed to believe all that the Lord had said to him. And he fell in that way. And as we know, in Adam, we all fell. And so in Adam, we have all committed this sin. And we know that we have also committed it, not only in Adam, but in our own lives. But does this law that we're recognizing in Adam, can we recognize it from Adam to Moses? Can we rightly say that the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, did not just come into the realm of humanity on Sinai here in Exodus 20? Well, I think we can in places that reference the Lord in the same way that the Lord references himself in verse 2. I am the Lord your God. When the Lord references himself in that way, it comes with all the obligations we have to the Lord as God. In Genesis 15, 7, the Lord says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of, Chalde Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Here the Lord speaking to Abram in Genesis 15, 7. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans. In this way, the Lord was establishing himself as Abram's God, and so he ought to have no other gods before him. 
in in more uh, implicit or explicit ways in Genesis 17:1, the Lord again dealing with Abram. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am God Almighty." Walk before me and be blameless. There he is saying, walk before me. That means come before me and be blameless. Come before me in worship. Uh, You shall have no other gods except me. Exodus 6, 7, when the Lord is telling Moses what he will do, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is just a small cross-section of how the Lord addresses himself and the implications of him addressing himself in this way to people comes with the implied obligation that they ought to have no other gods before him. He doesn't say, he doesn't present himself as as, as one of the pantheon of gods that existed in the ancient Near East cultures. He doesn't say, you know this God and you know that God. Well, I am this God. I am the Lord God. No, he says, I am the Lord God. And in that way, he establishes himself exclusively as the one true and living God. And so the implied is that they should have no other gods before him. Well, we have found that we have fallen in Adam and that this law has also condemned those from Adam to Moses. And so it's helpful that as we look at this, that we would see our hope of our salvation and see Christ our Lord. John 15, 10, the Lord says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Here, the Lord, uh, the Lord Christ is proclaiming his uh, purity of worship. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. There was never a time when, the, when our Christ was under the wrath of God. He abided in the love of the Father. And he abided in the love of the Father because he kept his Father's commandments. We, we recognize that as the Historia Salutis, the history of salvation where Christ is working out in time and in space that eternal covenant, the covenant of redemption. And so in doing it, Christ is working out his covenant of works. And so he is to be obedient to all the moral law of God as the God-man. For if he were to break one of the commandments, he would be in need of salvation. He would be in need of redeeming. He would have been in need of cleansing before he could offer any sacrifices. And his own body as a sacrifice would be an imperfect sacrifice. And so it would not amount to the needed sacrifice. In Luke 4, in verses 5 through 8, we read that, he, that the, during his time of temptation, he was led up onto a, a precipice and he was shown all the kingdoms of the world in a moments of time. 
And the devil said to Christ, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, there's those words again, before me, it shall be, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Here, our Savior goes in our stead before Satan, representing all his elect there in that wilderness. He stands before Satan in, in some of the most intense trials that he experienced in his earthly ministry. And he's offered all the kingdoms of the world that were given subserviently to Satan to kind of handle in his own way. And Satan says, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you only worship before me. If you put me before the Father, if you put me and have me before you. Praise be to God that our Savior, Christ our Lord, withstood the trial, rebuked Satan. It says that at the end of his trial, he rebuked Satan and he left him. Satan never coming to approach Christ in the same way. And so we find in Christ our glorious redemption out of the first, the condemnation of the first commandment. And out of that condemnation, we are not freed from its requirements or from its prohibition so that we would say, now it's okay to serve other gods because Christ has forgiven your sins. Paul says, should we sin the more that grace should abound? May it never be. He says, so it is for the Christian to consider now the law of God as they are in Christ, not as a measure of um, our righteousness, but as a demonstration of our gratitude for the righteousness we receive. And so we find that for us in Christ, the first commandment requires us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God. And our God uh, and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. This isn't theism. This isn't deism. This isn't uh, the great spirit. This isn't the man upstairs. This isn't an acknowledgement that there could be a God or that there even is a God. What we're saying is, is that to be in Christ is to acknowledge God to be the only true God and our God and, and also to worship and glorify him accorded, accordingly. Here, we are instructed to give up ourselves to the will of God as our redeemer and devote ourselves to his service such that the, as the Apostle Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If we are in the flesh, then we are to live in Christ, that we are to obey as Christ has obeyed. We are to worship and glorify him accordingly. This first commandment is also that we would be committed to, so be committed to worship him with the inward man strengthened in the spirit. 
Ephesians 3 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. Again, this isn't bare knowledge. This isn't just some sort of um, verbal assent to God being the only true God, but this is by the power of our resurrected spirit to actually acknowledge these things strengthened in the inner man. You see, we come to the Ten Commandments as, as Christians and we come before it not with ultimately a can-do attitude. We know we can't do these. We know we, we falter. We have not committed ourselves to God fully. There is always this held, held, holding on by the flesh. But if we come to the Ten Commandments in Christ, we come to the Ten Commandments as been done in our Savior and so afforded to us by the strength of the Spirit an attitude of compliance and desire so that we desire these things and show this desire in our outward life, but rooted in the inner man, strengthened in the spirit. And so we ought to strive with that strength to not deny to God all that is deserving of him, whether in worship or work. So that we would strive with that strength to not deny to God all that is deserving of him, whether in worship or work. And if you falter at that, you go back to Christ. Remind yourself that he is perfectly obeyed. Renew, as Psalm 51 says, renew the joy of your salvation. And then ask for the spirit to guide you in all righteousness and truth. There in the first commandment is, it says in some ways is contained, it, it upholds all the rest of the commandments. For if God, if you have no other gods before our Lord, then you're going to take cues from him on how he is to be worshipped and how he is to be approached and, and on and on with the rest. And so we look at the second commandment, that God is to be worshipped according to his direction. Never is God in, in the history of his creation afforded worship to be a part of the imagination of men. Never did he tell Adam in the garden, okay, go and do whatever you want and I'll accept it as worship. Even after the fall, we see that he set a precedent of worship in the offering up of sacrifices. And he particularly set aside the sacrifice of a lamb or uh, uh, of, of something of purity. And so when we see Abel and Cain approaching God with different sacrifices, we find in them an impropriety in one and a, and a faith in the other. First, let's look at Adam before I get ahead of myself. Adam, Edward Fisher says he idolized and deified his own belly. The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the 
earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There we have an addendum to the commandment of you shall not make for yourself an item and you an, an idol and you shall not worship them or serve them. Edward Fisher says he that Adam idolized and deified his own belly, his own appetite. Not not just in that he was hungry, but his fleshly appetite to have more than the Lord had appointed him. And so he made his belly his God. Mark Jones says that he broke the second commandment. God was to be worshipped in a particular manner, which included what Adam was commanded to do, as well as what Adam was commanded not to do. But Adam transgressed the laws of proper worship. Adam tolerated false religion and did not, as prophet, priest, and king, guard the temple of God. He should have snapped the serpent's head off. He should have cleansed that garden temple by expelling the serpent. But instead, he broke the second commandment and worshipped in a particular manner not prescribed by God. The tree, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not for the glory of God. It was not to be eaten for the glory of God. There was no way for Adam to take that and redeem it into something for the glory of God, for the Lord not only prohibited it, but he had also prescribed in the way he ought to be worshipped by Adam, which was for him to keep and tend the garden and in likewise obey all the law of God. This is probably the easier task as we look from Adam to Moses and we consider his idolatry, is making idols and false worship prohibited prior to Sinai. Genesis 35 and verse 2, So Jacob said to his household and to all, and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. There Jacob uh, instructing his household to put away foreign gods. If the second commandment was not of moral substance, was a moral nature, his family could respond to him, say, oh, dad, come on. We can worship God with these. There's no prohibition about it. For God has yet to say, you shall not make an idol. No, the, imply, the implication is that you ought not to make a graven image. You ought not to make a physical representation of God and certainly you ought not to worship that. In Genesis 4, in verses 3 and 4, as I made reference, it says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. This wasn't just an approach issue of faith and works. This was a prescription issue. Hebrews said, says that by faith, Abel offered, a good, offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, one that was prescribed by God. 
Cain not willing to humble himself maybe and go to his brother and say, hey, I've got these, this produce. Can I trade it for a lamb? Or maybe can you just give me something that I may offer to the Lord? But he brought what he had thought was acceptable to God. And the Lord uh, had no regard for Abel and his offering. Listen to Leviticus 18 as it relates to not only from Adam to Moses, but also to the Israelites as they enter into the land. In Leviticus 18 and some various passages from it, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for I, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled." Those Canaanites were living in the land before the Israelites came to dispossess them of the land. And they were offering up heinous sacrifices to Moloch, immoral sacrifices to their other gods. And it wasn't acceptable because it violated the moral law of God. It was an abomination. What about Christ? Christ, he fulfilled what was written of him in Psalm 24 and verses three and four. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What did they say about the the making of idols is that it would defile you. It would defile you. You would not have clean hands or a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully? Here in this psalm, we find that it was our Savior who did not lift up his soul to falsehood. It was our Savior who had clean hands and a pure heart to offer to God true and sinless worship. He was also an expert in the right worship of God. In Matthew chapter 15, let's turn there together. I haven't been giving you guys a chance here in the previous ones. Let's turn to Matthew 15 together. Matthew 15 Verses 1 through 9, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered them and said, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who, sp- and he who speaks evil of father and mother is, but, is to be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that I would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father and mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. 
You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Here we see the Lord rebuking the Pharisees, telling them that they've polluted the true worship of God, true old covenant worship of God. They've polluted it what? With their precepts, with what they imagined to be honoring to God. Certainly we see ulterior motive there in, in their, a way to enrich themselves or to enrich their friends. But in this way, the Lord, our God, who is an expert in the right worship of the Lord, condemns them. He also restores true worship. In John 4, when Christ speaking to the woman, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Here the Lord has said that one, in one day you will not worship the Lord there in Samaria or here in Jerusalem or down in Jerusalem, but you will worship the God in trueness and spirit and truth. That the Lord was saying that he's, he's come to establish true worship as the last Adam. He comes to, con- to in, in a way, remake the garden in that way. The temple of God. Finally, he is the true image of God. Something to be known. Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Christ is the, the true image of God and by way of the union of natures in the person of Christ, we may make distinction in our theology so that we not violate the being of God in attributing works according each nature according to what is proper to itself. But as it relates to worship, we worship the person of the God-man. And so for us in Christ, we would not seek to remake that image. We would not seek to cast that image according to some man's imagination, no matter how accurate or historical that person might try to be. Yet I've found that in most of the images casted of Christ, there is no regard for historical accuracy from modern day to older day or ancient day. The Lord is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so it is uh, uh, commonly taught in Reformed theology for those that are in Christ that they are not to cast any image of God. It even goes so far as to say you are not to think of God in image. There's something that condemns you. I've never made an idol. I've never made a painting. I've never bowed down to anything. Uh, But even in speaking of such things, I've violated this commandment and am in need of the forgiveness of Christ. I'm in need of his perfect worship. So for us in Christ, who is our head, who is the perfect image of God, so kept the second commandment, we too ought to seek to walk as he walked, looking to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Our Baptist Catechism says that the second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. We are to be zealous to worship God as he has prescribed it. Not just because we are seeking to be holier than other places that gather to worship God or that we are to be so distinct in our way that is it is somewhat of our identity no because we're zealous for the holiness of God we're zealous for his truth and how he has prescribed himself to be worshiped we're going to find that if we don't do it in that light we violate the third commandment for we don't approach God in worship we approach him in vanity we profane his name in this commandment, it's, forbid, it's also forbidden the neglecting of prayer. The absences of ourselves from the hearing of the word preached or any other ordinance of God when the Lord calls us thereunto are rejecting the sacrament of baptism, are sliding the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, also is praying to saints and angels, the making of of images for religious uses, and so also is the representing God by an image. So also are all carnal imaginations of God in worship, the worshiping of God according to our own fancies. And so we come to the second commandment and we find that the Lord himself says, I I am the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol not in the image of man, not in the image of anything on earth or in heaven above or anything under the sea. And you shall not worship them or serve them. So here we find for us as as those who are in Christ, we have our hope in Christ who is the perfect imprint, the exact representation of his nature. And so it is in him our faith rests that though we falter in, our second, in the second commandment, we are renewed in our spirit to seek with zealous conformity to his will in how he is prescribed to be worshipped. The third commandment, the third commandment, our final commandment this morning, for Adam, Edward Fisher says, he took the name of God in vain when he believed him not. If we, first, if we forsake belief in God, if we don't take God at his word, we profane his name. His name becomes vanity on our lips and vanity in our thoughts. And so Adam, when he did not believe God, the name of God was taken in vain and he broke this commandment. Mark Jones says he broke the third commandment as God's son and God's image bearer. Adam brought dishonor upon his father. God must be given the preeminence by those who bear his name. Moreover, God's word, the word by which he spoke to Adam and warned him, was not reverently used by Adam. He failed to speak true theology to the serpent. See, the third commandment prohibits blasphemous worship spiritless prayers, drone theology. It's okay to 
to learn things and memorize them and to have them committed to memory. But if we don't do it in faith, we do it in violation of the third commandment. This is the low-hanging fruit is that you don't take the Lord's name in vain is that you don't use euphemisms and you, you, don't, you don't use OMG. You don't, you don't cry out to God flippantly. You certainly don't use our Savior's name as a byword or a curse word. Yeah, that's for sure. And many of you are like, yeah, no, I don't do that. Praise the Lord. But as we approach the Lord with deadness, dullness of heart, we violate the third commandment. For in that way, when you speak the Lord's name, it's vanity on your lips. We ought to, as we begin our time, and, and usually in our prayers of adoration, it is for the, us to come before the Lord, seeking the help of his spirit, to approach him in an acceptable way by the power of the spirit. Getting ahead of myself again, what about from Adam to Moses? Leviticus chapter 20 verses 1 through 3 and verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall also say to the sons of Israel, any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I drive out before you for they did all these things and therefore I have abhorred them. Here we find the profaning of the name of God connected to false worship. And so this existing here in the land of Canaan prior to Sinai. And it was abhorred by the Lord. We find it also in Job. Job is understood to be uh, a very earlier, a very early character, probably contemporary to Abraham or maybe even a little bit before or after him. And it says that in Job 1, 4 through 5, that his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we find this prohibition from using the, taking the Lord's name in vain as a, as a connecting to cursing gods and cursing God in their hearts and certainly sinning against the Lord. Well, what about Christ? Christ, let's turn to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, verses 44 
through 50, we read that Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And so we hear again, we we're, we we peer into the Historius Salutis, the history of salvation in Christ. And we find that Christ is saying that he spoke according to all that accords with the Father. Never violating, never a vain word, never a vain thought came into our Savior's mind. He only spoke the words the Father gave him. In other words, he did not ever take God's name in vain, but only spoke the truth about the Father and brought glory to the Father by living in a manner conducive with who he is, the Son of God. And so our Savior, who never, certainly upon his lips, and never in his mind or heart, did he violate our, the third commandment. And so for us, he becomes our great word. He is the word made flesh. He is to be the word in our hearts, the word on our lips. So then as Christ spoke and thought only that what was given to him, so we are to only speak with what accords with the word of God. Our Baptist catechism is helpful. Again, the third commandment forbids all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. As it relates to the approach of God, our confession is helpful in chapter 22 of religious worship and the Sabbath day. Prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship. So in other words, that all men ought to pray. All men ought to offer offer up prayers to God. That's moral, all men in all places. Is by God required of all men, but that it may be accepted It is be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit according to his will with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. And when with others, in a known tongue. And so we see here that in this third commandment for us is that we are to approach God in reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. Trusting wholly upon one who profaned not the name of God. Not relying on our ability to keep it, but resting in the one who has kept it. Enlivening, asking for an enlivening of the spirit and us to offer up worship in gratitude. And always and ready to conform our speech and our thoughts to what God has made known. So we see that the law held 
by the believer in faith when he performs it is not the law as a covenant of works, but to the law in the hand of Christ as a rule of duty when he yields it not for life, but from life, not in strength of nature, nor of grace already received, but in the strength of the grace that is in Christ Jesus, trusting that Christ, according to the promise, affords him continual supplies of grace. And when he performs it chiefly for the glory of Christ and of God in Christ, it is evangelical obedience when a man performs it not to recommend him to the favor of God, but in the faith of God's favor. When this is done in this way, it's performed not to recommend ourselves to God's favor, but in the faith of God's favor, that we have received God's favor already in Christ. Not that it may be our justifying righteousness, but that it may be a continued expression of adoring gratitude for the gift of his Redeemer's righteousness. Not that it may dispose the Lord to become his God, but because he already is our God and Father. Only such obedience as that is agreeable to the gospel of Christ. So then this law as a covenant of works must be preached to the unregenerate sinners in order to convince them of their sin and misery and to impel them to accept the compassion, compassionate Savior offered to them in the gospel. This same law as a rule of life must be preached to the believers in order to excite them to trust at all times in Christ for new supplies of sanctifying grace and to advance in holy conformity to him to the glory and praise of our Lord in his name, in his church as he is worshiped and certainly as we walk before him as our one true and living God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, in our natural condition, are fallen in Adam. His sin is our sin. His breaking of the covenant is our breaking of the covenant. And we add to that. With a judged and condemned conscience, we add to it in our own life, sinning against you in thought, word, and deed. Oh, but the glories of your grace and kindness to us in Christ, the riches of your grace. For we who were dead in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ. May this enlivening Lord, by your spirit, work to give us hearts of gratitude to you, to come to your law and want to honor you by obeying it, knowing that in Christ, we have an unshakable kingdom. And from the Father, we have eternal love in Christ our Lord. May this give us zeal for your law. And may that zeal be seen in those who do not know you. And may by that avenues and opportunities of the gospel be made available that we may share this love with those who do not know it. 
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.